This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and not to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate of, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is a proposition of our sins, and not of ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. And if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you're like me. Are you a Monty Python fan? I like Monty Python. They were, they were good and funny. and um, They had a great skit that was called The Minister of Silly Walks. And there were, Michael Palin basically comes into John Cleese and, and says that he has a silly walk that he needs to register with the Ministry of Silly Walks. Now there's a couple of things that you need to know. One, being one that holds an American passport as my passport country, the idea of a ministry of something was very foreign to me when I first started watching Monty Python. Obviously now, having lived here, I understand kind of the concept and what's going on. And, and so Michael Palin comes in and he wants to register a silly walk. And John Cleese says, you need to show me this silly walk. And he tries to show him a silly walk, and that silly walk's not nearly good enough to be registered with the Ministry of Silly Walks. And it goes a couple of different times. And then we see John Cleese do his silly walk, which is the most amazing thing. I would recommend that you Google it or YouTube it so that you can see it yourself. And, and you almost, as you're watching him walk, you think, how is that even humanly possible that he is walking that way? <laughs> Lynn, <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> kind of does this and sticks his foot out like that. I about passed out. That's happened before. John, in this letter, says to the listeners, how are you walking? What does your walk look like? Where are you headed? And he lets us know what it is to walk in the light. He, he starts off and he says to them, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, 
While we walk, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. How we walk lets folks know who we're following. When we think about how we're walking our steps, perhaps you're someone who walks and you shuffle and you look down as you're walking. People will see that and they'll recognize that's telling them something about what's going on in your life, that there's a lack of energy or perhaps there's something that is burdening you in your heart and so you're not looking up and taking, uh, uh, paying attention to what's going on. You're just trying to get through the day. Perhaps if you walk and you have a little spring in your step and you're walking along, people will look at you and say something good has happened to you. Something fun is going on in your life. You're singing a melody in your heart and things are going well. Maybe you walk on your tiptoes as fast as you can to get someplace like a little kid who can't anticipate and can't wait to get to that destination. What John here is saying is that there are those that are walking in darkness and there are those that are walking in light. And he reminds us that God, in fact, is light. That He is the one. Now remember, John is the apostle John, the beloved disciple who rested upon Jesus' chest, who knew Him very deeply, who was there when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So as John proclaims that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all, he is saying, folks, if we are joined together in fellowship, as we talked about last week, with one another and with God, then we must be those who walk in the light, that we cannot walk in darkness. And the first way that we move in that direction is the first thing we have to do is recognize that we have walked in darkness. That there's a place in our lives where we have stepped in darkness. That's why he says this. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But... If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, God, a liar, and His word is not in us. So for us to move to a place of walking in light, to be those who are stepping in lightness, then we first have to admit that we are broken. That we are sinful. Oh, that's a scary word. We don't want to admit that there's something wrong with us, do we? I mean, when we look in the mirror, we're freely admitting that there are things that are wrong with us that we would like to fix, right? Maybe a little bit more hair, a little thinner. But that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about those deep down things, not those surface things. Those places that we would never want anybody to know. The places that we're scared to death that somewhere, somewhere down the line, they're going to create a screen that we all have to put on our head that shows all our deep, intimate thoughts. And we know then that we'll have to stay in a room by ourselves, locked in a closet, because we would never want anybody to know what we're really thinking. We're broken. 
we're sinful. And the first way to step into the light is to be able to say, yes, that's me. I'm one of those. We don't like that because we want to think good of ourselves. We want to think like we're doing okay. We like to compare ourselves to others and say, I'm not half bad. But John says that if we say that, we're lying and deceiving ourselves. And not only that, we're proclaiming that the God that we talked about last week, the God who is almighty and and the ruler of the universe who became incarnate, who wants to complete our joy by having fellowship with him, he in fact is a liar as well. And so he says, no, confess, say out loud, speak it as truth that it is, that I am broken, that I am a sinner, that I walk in darkness. Because when we do that, the promise is this. When we walk in the light and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first way to walk lightly is to confess that we've been in darkness. And once we do that, we then get to do an amazing thing. We get to receive. We don't get to do and work and be active. We get to receive. We get to open up and allow God's forgiveness to transform us. We get to open up and allow God to move in such a way that our lives are changed from inside and out. Ezekiel puts it this way, that we are moved from people who have hearts of stone to people who have hearts of flesh. That we walk out of the darkness and we begin to walk in the light. And how we stay in that light is because of Jesus. It's because of what he does. He says, if you're fa- I am faithful and just to forgive you. And so it seems like we should then stop sinning, right? We don't want to walk in the darkness, we want to walk in the light. It should seem like that he's saying, look, if you're in the darkness, then you're in sin, and if you're in sin, then you can't be in fellowship with Jesus. And then if you're in light, then you're good. And so it seems like he's saying you've got to make sure you don't sin anymore. And that when you do, you, you lose it. And so you've got to get back. And that's why you've got to confess. That's sometimes how that's read. It's not what he's saying. There's a sense of walking, right, that's active. There's a sense of walking that is moving, that is progressing. And so he's not saying that those thoughts that creep through our minds, our darkness of our heart that puts ourselves on our throne, that says, Jesus, let me take over for just a little bit. What he's saying is when you're in a consistent manner of walking, when when all you're doing is walking and thinking about it, when, when you're constantly focused on self and your own and what you desire, That's when you're walking in the darkness. Why do we know that? Well, because he says then in in chapter 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, there's no understanding that sin stops, right? The understanding is that you're going to keep sinning, that it will happen. But if anyone does sin... You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So the second thing that we do is we receive. Right? First, we've got to admit. The second thing we've got to do is we've got to receive the forgiveness that God gives us. And then the third thing that we have to do is run. We run to the advocate. We run to the one who stands in our place. We run to the one who is the one and the only one who could clear our account. That word propitiation, it's a big word. It's only used twice in this letter in this way. What it means is a sacrificial offering, a a, a place of atonement, a place where there is a, a punishment that is due and then God brings something in place to take that punishment. But it's more than just the, the punishment. It's an understanding of why that wrath or why that, that, that God needs to deal with it, why that's there. The word often is used and has been used in, in secular Greek at this time uh, uh, about appeasing the gods. And today, there's a movement that wants to really claim that side of it, that when we talk about atonement, when we talk about this idea that there needed to be a sacrifice, that God somehow was just capricious and angry at all of humanity. And there's ways that you could see that, perhaps. Except for the way that God handles it. See, what's different between the capricious gods that we felt like we needed to appease by making some sacrifice to them so that their wrath wouldn't rain down on us is the fact that with God, the Holy One, His wrath is directed differently, number one, and number two, He is the one who sets Himself as the sacrifice. It's not a demand on anybody else but himself. So first, let's talk about the wrath. When we think about the wrath of God, John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote this. God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. God knows the brokenness that is in the world. He understands that in that brokenness, what it has done is separated us from His love and from a relationship completely within. What we say here at Fremantle Church is that God is in a relentless, steadfast, loving pursuit to bring us back into whole, truth, right relationship with Him, with ourselves, with all others, and with the place that he's put us, which for us is Fremantle. What God's wrath is towards is those very things that separate us from that. And the recognition is that we are participants in those things. That when we put ourselves on the throne of God, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, when we allow the idols, power and pleasure, 
control and comfort. When we allow those things to become more to us than what God is, what we're doing is breaking our relationship with Him. And He looks down on us with both love, a forceful, pursuing love, and a wrath that says, I've got to deal with this. So first of all, there's that, that God's wrath is not coming at us saying, if you don't do what's right, I'm going to crush you under. It's a wrath that says, I despise these things that separate us. Then he says, there's nothing you can do because I'm going to take care of it. He says, there's nothing that you can do because I am the one who can completely do away with this. Look, he says that Jesus is our righteous, Jesus Christ the righteous. That means that he holds and indwells all that is righteous. All that is the thing that holds us in that whole relationship with God and with ourselves and with all others and with place. And he brings us to that place through Jesus and through his work on the cross. He says that because of Jesus, I have dealt with the sins. He is our propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. This is a God who is a self-sacrificing God. That on the cross, God comes down to sacrifice Himself so that we can move into that whole relationship. So first, we have to admit that we need that. And then we have to receive it. And then we run to the advocate as we continue to say, I need it today even more than yesterday. I know you've completed this work and I take hold of it and claim it. Uh, Let me speak real quickly to that word for the whole world. Now, there's some that would read that and they would look at it and say, well, well, that means that everybody in all the world has received this. And as much as I would like that to be what it's saying, it's not. Because we look throughout the rest of the book of 1 John that he talks about the fact that there are those who are in darkness and those who are not in darkness. He talks about the fact that those who are not going to be there and those who are. 5.12 tells us this. Whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We go back to the fact that he is calling us to abide in whole right relationship with him, that he makes the way for us to do that, to move into that place. And so we can't read that and go, well, then it's just everybody, that all are there, because it doesn't line up with the rest of what Scripture shows us. Can I flip back just to John 3? Most of you probably know this. If you were in church at any point in your life, you heard some of these verses. This is Jesus, and he's dealing with Nicodemus, and he's talking to them, and there's this great place where he says, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, 
that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, I'm not going to climb into my mom's womb. How can that possibly happen? And Jesus says, truly, I say that... Uh, Say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I say. You must be born again. Then he skips down and he says this in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Listen to this. See where John's going. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in him. And so what John is saying here is that the world, there's two things that he's saying here. The first one is this. And very much uh, 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 the way that John, uh, as an Israelite, as part of the Jewish nation, would recognize what the world is. A lot of times when they're writing, when they say the world, they're referring to Gentiles. They're referring to those who are outside of the nation. And so very likely he could be saying it was not just for us, the apostles, and those who are part of the holy tribe of Israel, but also the Gentiles. But because the world is cosmos there, it's the world. We read here in John 3, he says, For God so loved the world that he's in his Son. And so there's a place where we can go. So the love is available for all in the world. But something has to happen. They have to believe. They have to believe. They have to go, I, I need this. I'm broken. They then have to receive it as a gift that it is. And then they have to run to it constantly saying, I need this. I, I need to be present. Advocate for me. Come for me. But where does that belief come from? Do we muster it up ourselves? Those of us who are so intent on our own pleasure, those of us who are so intent on our own lives, those of us who are so intent on what we want and how we desire life to go, if it would just go my way, those of us who Scripture said are dead and enemies to God, where does this faith come from? Ephesians tells us this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. That gift of God refers back to both grace and faith. That idea is that I, I could try to muster up as much of this to believe that this is amazingly true, but the reality is in my own heart, I'm going to deny it. Except for God moving and changing me and taking my heart of stone and making it into a heart of flesh. 
And that's the reason why we have to come to Christ over and over again. That's the reason why we need to run to Him. Not because we're in any fear of losing what God has done. That's not the case. It's that we're in fear of forgetting what God has done. That He has moved in our lives and made us new and alive in Him. And so we rest in our receiving, in our running. And then he says, this is how it will look. This is how that walk will look, a walk that is in the light. He goes back and he says this. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this we may now know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in me ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk? He walked in light. And we walk in that same light as we are His. If you're here and you're trying to figure out what, what is this all about, and you're trying to think through, I, I, I really am interested in this or I'm really kind of not interested in this, but somehow I ended up here. Hear this. In what John is saying is that this desire to walk in the light this idea that there is something more and beyond, that there is a place of love unimaginable, of whole relationship that I could only hope for and dream for, that I can long for, that always gets knocked down by those around me, whether they be inside a gathering like this church or outside a gathering like this church. Because we know that our humanity rubs up against each other and causes us to doubt the mere existence of God. Because our darkness holds on, like some aura around us that infects those. Except that God's light is so much more powerful than that. That it is not overcome by the darkness that we even ourselves sometimes bring to it. That it shines brightly and it says, my love is sufficient for you. And so if you're here and you're trying to figure this out, hear God whispering to you, saying your name, the name that you didn't even know you had, the name that he gave you before the foundations of the world to say, you are my child and I love you and I long for relationship with you and I've done everything that needs to happen for you to be brought into that. And it is my gift and I will help you to believe. I will cause you to believe. And if you are here and you've been following Jesus for a little bit, or for maybe your whole life, first of all, know this. I know that you question it sometimes. How do I know that? I'm one of them. Can God really forgive me? I mean, that was pretty bad. Can God really step in? I mean, I'm really selfish. I know I don't appear that way. And 
And what this is telling us is yes. Yes, over and over again. Yes, that the advocate stands as the mighty one and says, I have taken care of this. One of the commentaries I was reading about this passage, he tells the story of his buddy who had just graduated from college. And in graduating from college, he needed to move to a new place to take that job. And to take that job, he wasn't going to get paid for that job for a couple of weeks. And so he got there, and he knew that he had uh, rent that he had to pay, and he knew he needed gas in his car, and he knew he needed food, and he knew he had insurance payments that he needed to make. But he knew that he could maybe hold off for that paycheck because he would get paid, and it would be good. And when he got his paycheck in that two weeks of the job, he looked at it, and he noticed that it was significantly lower than what he thought it should be. And so he went back and he looked at his offer letter and he said, is this the offer letter? What's, yeah, and he kind of figured out the math, which is good for him. I would have never been able to figure that out. And he figured out the math. And when he did, he realized that something was wrong. They hadn't paid him enough. And so he went to his boss and he said, um, I think there's something wrong here. And she looked at it and agreed with him and said, well, let, let me go talk to HR. And so went into our office and called HR and he kind of stood outside the door. Even though the door was shut, he could hear her talking. And he heard her advocating for him saying, no, no, uh, something has gone wrong and we need to pay him his full amount and we need to do that now. And, and they were like, well, that's great. We'll make it up in the next paycheck. Now, what he's thinking in his mind at this point is, if I get it in my next paycheck, that's fine. I'll be able to pay my rent, but I'll have to go two weeks without eating. And my insurance on my car might lapse, and that's a bad thing. And I'm not even sure how I'll get to work, because I don't know that I'll be able to put petrol in my car. But at least I'll be able to pay rent, and that's good. And so he'd resigned to that fact, but he overheard the boss saying, no, We'll make this right, right now. Cut a check right now to make up this difference, this mistake. He goes on to say that's a very poor analogy because most are. And here's the reason why it's hard for us to have an analogy about what God does through Christ to atone for us. It is so unbelievable, miraculous amazing it is so far beyond anything that we would ever think could happen to us and yet it's truth that God says I've got you and I will bring you in and in doing that we are able to walk in his light let me pray for us Father, you are good to us, and all you do is good. We give you glory and honor and praise today. Let us walk in the light as you are in the light. Let us hold tight to who you are. And let us run to what you have done for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand up and sing in response to the words that we've heard?